Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Let's begin reading in Acts 4. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Now, verse 2 tells us why this was so upsetting to the Sadducees. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There were various religious groups in the first century. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of the main ones we see in the New Testament. And though they agreed often in their opposition to Jesus, there were different reasons why they were opposed to Jesus. The Sadducees denied uh, miracles, the supernatural, angels, evil, and the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees weren't fans of Jesus, but they believed in the resurrection. And when Peter is preaching the resurrection in Jesus, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, the Sadducees didn't want any, any part of that. So what did they do? They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Too late to start the trial that day, so let's, let's hold them overnight. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. They counted the men. If most of those men were married and had children, that's a lot of people. <laughs> it's, it's stunning what's happening. In other words, the, these leaders are trying to stop the message of Jesus, but the opposite is happening. It is expanding incredibly. And they're going to have a trial. And today we're going to look at what happened here. And it's really a great model for us today because they lived in a culture that was opposed to the gospel of Jesus. Guess what our culture is? (laughs) It is opposed to the gospel of Jesus. I mean, we live in the same exact kind of culture they did. And we are, as believers in Christ, called to take the message of Christ to people. And the question is, how can we do that? What should we do when we live in a place that's anti-Jesus and doesn't want us to say those things and doesn't believe those things? What, what can we do? There are two great examples here for ways that we can respond to opposition to the message of Jesus. And we see them doing this. And the first one is surrender to the Holy Spirit so he will fill and empower you to speak the truth of the gospel boldly. Let's watch what happened here, picking it up at verse The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, 
John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. Any of those names ring a bell to you? Maybe Annas and Caiaphas. Think about the trial of Jesus. Annas was the high priest at that point. He's now the the kind of high priest emeritus. He's the ex-high priest, but he's still involved in this group. And his son-in-law, who is the current high priest, Caiaphas, was there. Now, the Sanhedrin, that was the supreme council of the Jews, 71 people, and it governed all religious and civil law. So they, this is, I guess this would be like the Supreme Court. This would be like for us, the case is coming to the Supreme Court. For them, in that day, it was the Supreme Council. It was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, of elders and of the teachers of the law or the scribes. So they're all gathered there together. Verse 7. They had brought, or they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or name did you do this? Again, echoes of the Gospels, right? Remember when they brought Jesus in? They said, hey, what, by what authority are you doing these things? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Now, before I read what he said, let's pause here at verse 7. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that's the key to this passage. This, this passage isn't about how great Peter was or how courageous Peter was in himself. This is about what happens when the Holy Spirit fills someone. And Luke, the writer, makes it clear up front. He's telling, he's going to say that again at the end of the, the, the chapter about being filled with the Spirit. But he, he starts by showing them this is what, this, this is the power source. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice what he says. Rather than being scared, rather than being timid, rather than compromising his message. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, pluralism puts Jesus on the same plane as founders of other faiths and says they're all valid expressions. That whatever expression of faith you have, they're all equal and valid and nobody has the right to tell anybody else that theirs is the only way. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) We hear it everywhere from different religious leaders to pop people like Gandhi, for instance, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. 
Or that great theologian, Oprah Winfrey. He says facetiously, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Now, more alarming than Gandhi or Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey to me is some people who claim to be Christians. You know, Barna did a lot of research, George Barna, but the Pew Research Company does a lot of those surveys. And there was a survey they did, and they asked people of different religions what they believed about whether their religion is is the one true faith that leads to eternal life or whether many religions can lead to eternal life. Buckle up. Two-thirds of people who identified themselves as Christians said they believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. And 50% of professing Christians believe that some non-Christian religions can lead to life everlasting. That's pluralism. (laughs) And in contrast to pluralism, what we have in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 is exclusivism or particularism which says that faith in Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation. In spite of what our culture tries to brainwash us with, it is not mean or arrogant or narrow or unloving to proclaim the truth of how people can be saved, especially if the other beliefs will lead them to damnation. Now, let me give you two examples. Hopefully this would never happen. Hopefully there'll never be a fire in this building. But I'm sure the records remember they were here early on. Barb, you were here on our first, no, third, it was like maybe the third public service in this building, the fire alarms went off. And they were like going crazy. And we didn't know what to do. <laughs> we have a, a plan now and all that. But let's say, for instance, there, there are many exit doors, right? I mean, there's in, just to get out of this room, one, two, three, four, five, six sets of double doors. You can go out any of them, right? But then to get out of the building, you've got two sets of double doors in the lobby there, and you've got four sets over here, then all the classrooms down the hall have doors where the kids can go out. And there, there, there's a single door there and a single door there, and you can even go out through the kitchen. But what if there was a fire and somehow every door got locked and from the inside, which they don't lock from the inside. But what if... What if we knew that running to those doors was going to endanger people because the smoke would be filling and they wouldn't be able to get out. And there was only one door that you could go out, and it was that door out there. And Jim Bennett's out there, and he pokes his head in, and he says, Hey, everybody, come this way. This is the way right here. Don't go those other ways. And if other people are at these doors saying, No, look, this is closer. Come here. Don't be narrow, Jim. Don't be bigoted. Would would his actions be loving? Of course they would. 
Or I read this week about skydiving. How many of you have been skydiving? Anybody? Me either. How many of you are going skydiving? Me either. <laughs> but if you, if you go skydiving at the Southwest Florida Skydiving Club in Punta Gorda, Florida, your jump master is going to give you these instructions. Don't curl up in the fetal position. You can slip out of your harness. Arch your back and hold your arms out in front of you. That keeps you from slipping out of your harness and gets you flying in the correct position. When you're landing, stick your legs out in front. I think that one's obvious. Do everything your jump master tells you to do immediately and no pets allowed on your jump. Now, those are non-negotiable. They are absolute. But let's imagine another skydiving experience. When you arrive, a smiling instructor begins strapping a parachute onto your back and walking over to the plane. And over the noise of the engine, the instructor yells, We here at the Relativist Skydiving School believe there are many ways to get from the plane to the ground. We respect everyone's desire to skydive. And we don't believe in absolute rules. Just listen to your inner voice. Respond honestly to your feelings and have a memorable experience. We'll see you when you get down. Okay. It's silly, but it illustrates the silliness and really more than the silliness, the insidiousness of the false beliefs in our society that want to make us as believers in Christ who hold to the exclusive, exclu, easy for me to say, the exclusive nature of Christ to think that we're narrow or wrong for holding that or telling people about that. This is what they need to hear. Jesus died for you. You can go to heaven. He can save you. Salvation is found Nowhere else. It's in Jesus. Wait a minute. Peter? The guy who denied that he even knew Jesus? Is the one standing up and saying this? What's the key? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter's not trying to defend his actions here, per se. He's not trying to get out of a punishment. He's using the occasion and the opportunity to share the good news of Christ. He's using that physical healing as an example of the spiritual healing that we all need. And he points to him and he says, look, you, you know, you were guilty. You crucified him. You can be saved. And when they saw, verse 13, when they saw the courage... Peter and John realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, unschooled doesn't mean that they were ignorant. It just meant that they had not been schooled in the, the rabbinic traditions. But they spoke boldly, and, 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 and they were ordinary men. I'm so glad Luke included that description. Um, they were laymen or amateurs. It, the word refers to somebody who has not gained systematic information or expertise in a field of activity. They, they, were just, they were just ordinary people, and I think that's encouraging to all of us. 
and all of you. That God can use you because though you and I are ordinary, the Holy Spirit is extraordinary and he can fill us. Well, these these members of the Sanhedrin were stunned, of course, but their hands were tied. Look, look at the next verse. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing there, there was nothing they could say. <laughs> Here's the guy, the lame guy. <laughs> and he's standing right there. Okay. What can they say? So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's like telling a football team. You can be a team. You can get your uniforms. You can have your little practices. But you can't go score any touchdowns. Or or try to win any football games. Or it's like telling a political party, you can organize and call yourself the whatever party. You can have meetings, but you can't try to get anybody elected. In other words, they're, they're striking at the fundamental mission of the church, which is to tell people about Jesus. And Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Again, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Word of God. That's part of being filled with the Spirit. You know, he quoted Psalm 118, boom, 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 right? He didn't have to apparently go look it up. And God used him. And that's, that's, the, first, that's, that's the first way that we respond. So we live in a co- context and a culture that there's opposition to the gospel. What's the first thing to do? It's just to surrender to God and just... Say, Lord, we need you. We, we need to be filled by your spirit. I, I really believe that every one of us can be used by God in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our world. But it's going to take the power of the spirit. <laughs> the second way to respond is the second thing they did in this passage, and that is to gather with the church to pray for God's power. Gather with the church. Now, we, we're going to walk through their prayer beginning in verse 23, and in it, we're going to see some characteristics of corporate prayer, dynamic corporate prayer, four characteristics. First of all, it involves a shared commitment to corporate prayer. Look at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. <laughs> what are they going to do? They, they tell them all about that. Hey, 
They've told us we can't preach in Jesus' name anymore. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Life often confronts us with difficult circumstances. They're usually unplanned circumstances, and we face a decision. What do we do when that happens? Well, what did they do? They prayed. Prayer was the first thing they did. They didn't do what we might have done in America through the years, start a petition, protest, hold a meeting to discuss our options, wring our hands and worry. Yeah, let's, let's figure out a way to make the government think differently about this. No. They, they didn't do any of those things. They went to God with the problem. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. If there's anything we as a church can do and hopefully will do is raise our voices together in prayer to God. That's at the heart. Because when we do that, everything else springs out. Evangelism, discipleship, community, worship, sacrifice, all of it. Boom, boom, boom. God fills with the Holy Spirit and does all of these things. How many times have we said, well, we've done everything else we can do now. We might as well pray. <laughs> have you ever said that? <laughs> Who's guilty? I'm guilty. <laughs> first Timothy 2.1, Paul said, I've urged, first of all, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. One writer, Richard Foster, says, I'd love to see our churches become houses of prayer. I know you would too. All too often, however, there are places for everything and anything except prayer. True, we, we need to have our business meetings and our committee meetings and our Bible studies and our self-help groups and our worship services. But if the fire is not at the center, these things are only ashes in our hands. So that's the first thing we learn. This is a shared commitment. They, they just, together, we're committed. Let's, let's pray. Secondly, it rests in God's sovereignty. Look how they prayed. Sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This is Psalm 2. <laughs> the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together uh, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They're quoting Psalm 2. The point of Psalm 2, we won't turn back there, but if you, if you were to go back and read Psalm 2, the point of Psalm 2 is it's futile for the nations to rail against God, to mock God. To, to stand opposed to God. Because God not only created the universe, but he foresaw ahead of time that human beings were going to scheme and plot. And the psalm 
talked about God's anointed one, which in the original context was the king of Israel. But it looked forward to the Messiah who would be the anointed one, God's representative. In fact, remember when Jesus was baptized, what that voice from heaven said, you are my son. The nation's rage. Why did the nation's rage? Psalm 2 says, well, that was speaking of the Romans who sentenced and crucified him. The people's plot, that's the rulers of the Jews who plotted it. The rulers gathered together, that was represented by Pilate. And so in Acts, the, these people who united against Jesus, they were guilty, they were plotting, but they were just doing what God had sovereignly ordained from the beginning. The Messiah was destined to suffer. In other words, God was in control. And I think this helps me in prayer and helps us in prayer in at least a couple of ways. One is when we're facing a situation, this could be whether we're praying together about it as a church or whether you're facing something individually and it's troubling and you're praying about it. It's, it's good to rehearse what God has done in the past. Because we often forget about it. And that's what they're doing. They're going back and rehearsing what God had done in the past. They started there instead of with their request. And how many times do we just like zoom in? God, this is what I need. (laughs) Now, of course, if you're Peter and you're walking on the water and you're going down, okay, you don't need to talk about the sovereignty of God. It's okay to say help, Lord. (laughs) The second thing is don't take attacks against you or what you perceive to be attacks. When you try to witness for Christ and somebody rejects or doesn't want to hear, or maybe they even say something about you or to you, don't take those personally. In other words, Peter and them, they weren't taking these attacks personally. They were viewing the attack against them as a continuation of the attack of these people against God. Sovereignty means that God controls everything and makes everything work for his plan. But how, that's God's part, but how does God's part and our part work together in prayer? I mean, we've all said it probably or thought it or discussed it with others. If God is sovereign, why pray? If he's going to accomplish his plans anyway, why, why do we pray? And I, I'm going to give you the answer this morning. I don't have an answer. <laughs> but let me give you a hint towards an answer, okay? And I'm going to give it to you in slogans that you've all heard. Maybe you've seen them on bumper stickers. Prayer changes things. Seen that one? <laughs> And then there was one that came along after that that said, prayer changes nothing. God changes everything. Hmm. Well, how about a third one? I I haven't seen this, but maybe I can market it. So if anybody's good with graphic design, maybe we can market this. And this will become the famous bumper sticker. God changes everything. 
often through prayer. I think that gets at it. We don't understand the sovereign workings of God, but the sovereign God says, come pray. And sometimes he uses those prayers. Well, he always uses those prayers. Sometimes we get to see it in ways that we can obviously see his answer. Sometimes we don't see the answer. But prayer is used by God. The third thing about prayer is it seeks God's enablement and intervention. It's very, very interesting what they did and didn't pray for here. They didn't pray, Lord, stop these people from bothering us. Get us out of this mess, Lord. No, verse 29, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They sought God to enable them and to intervene. And that just was their way of saying, God, we can't do it. We need your enablement. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is a great indication that we know that we can't do it. We need God. They prayed for courage to keep proclaiming the message boldly. They prayed that God would affirm their ministry through continued healings and miracles. Sometimes God changes our bad situations. Sometimes he equips us to deal with them in ways we couldn't do on our own. Well, the last characteristic of prayer we see here is it infuses the church with God's power. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. In verse 8, it was Peter filled with the Spirit, right? And now the church gathers and they all pray, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to do that as we pray. We pray together, and I encourage you, anytime you do prayer with each other, whether it's in a small group or just on your own or a team or a meeting or group or whatever, yeah, pray, pray for the needs, of course, but pray for each other. Pray for the group. Pray for the church to be filled with the Spirit. Pray that God would enable us and fill us with His power. Because we need that more than all the other things we think we need. And what is, what's the results? They, they were boldly witnessing. Verse 32, we'll get into next week. They fellowship together. They were generous with each other. Verse 33, there was power and grace. Chapter 11, verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Before prayer and the filling of the Holy Spirit, they were doubtful and weak, but afterwards they became a vibrant church. God can still do it today. This is what happened when God builds his church. When God builds his church, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness boldly. And actually, there's two sentences today. <laughs> Not only that, but when God fills, builds his church, it makes prayer its first priority rather than its last resort. 
Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.